Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu from the podcast team at Qalam. We wanted to wish you a very blessed Ramadan. This month you can expect daily uploads that will include reflections, khatiras and khutbas all from our new campus Alhamdulillah. If you benefit from this content, please give generously at supportqalam.com. 100% of your donations goes towards the means of providing accessible Islamic knowledge to people around the world. Jazakumullah khairan for listening. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. So inshallah, uh, we'll go ahead and get started and jump right into it. I apologize for a little bit of delay. Um, today, inshallah, in terms of talking about you know, the, the series that we've had throughout these, uh, since the beginning of the last 10 nights, which of course is not over yet. We still have a couple of more nights left, inshallah. Uh, and I would encourage those who have been, doesn't matter whether you've been coming here or anywhere else, but in general, those who have been making time during the last 10 nights consistently to worship, maybe even go to the masjid, go and attend the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for worship, um, that it's important to see that through, right? And to follow through all the way up until the last night of the month of Ramadan. Um, and, you know, it's no surprise, but we, we know about how actions are based and contingent upon the intentions behind them, right? And we know that, you know, you have to start properly and you have to start well right by saying bismillah right um, there's a week it's a weaker narration but it's there is a narration that talks about kullu amrin lam that anything notable anything admirable anything noteworthy that is not started with the name of god with the name of allah then that will be lacking in blessing right Similarly, there is a narration that says, Actions are also ultimately graded on, actions are ultimately graded based on the endings and how they conclude. Somebody whose last word is La ilaha illallah will enter paradise. Right? So, and that is a huge uh, area and a place of fitna, right? That's, that's, that's something where oftentimes our weaknesses are exposed and exploited. Um, and so that's something that we all struggle with. That's a dilemma that we all have. And um, so that's a dilemma that we all have in shaitan particularly. I know that the whole narration is about shaitan being chained up and whatnot. But I, just in general, right? That's... The weakness that is exploited is the fact that the follow through, right, to see something through, to finish properly, um, that's, that's a challenge. And that a lot of times, you know, and just in general, whether it's academics, whether it's, you know, um, any other kind of strategic thinking, uh, a lot of times that last 10%, right, that is usually the difference between good and great. Um, and so the month of Ramadan is no different, right? That the 27th of Ramadan, yes, there are a preponderance of narrations that talk about the 27th being most likely Laylatul Qadr, right? And then when you compound that with the fact that 
many places have completed the recitation of the Qur'an in sequence by the 27th, either on the 25th or on the 27th. When you kind of add those things together, um, it becomes a little bit you know, more and more difficult. It becomes a little bit harder to kind of push yourself uh, to follow through. Um, but that's exactly why it's important. Right, so, um, but anyways, inshallah, we're, we're happy to have everyone here, and inshallah, we'll be here every night until the conclusion of the month of Ramadan, so we hope that you'll come and join us as well. So, in terms of our series that we've had here titled Forgiveness, uh, Forgiven, excuse me, where we are talking about stories of forgiveness from the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the lives of the companions, Ridwanullahi ta'ala alayhim ajma'in, may Allah be pleased with them. We talked about different people. Today we're going to talk about someone who, again, has a very complicated background and history. So, when the Prophet ﷺ started preaching and teaching the message of Islam in Mecca, one of the most staunch, harsh, and vile people, obscene people, who opposed the Prophet ﷺ was a man by the name of Umayyah ibn Khalaf al-Jumhi. Umayyah bin Khalaf, he was a very prominent leader in the Meccan community, very wealthy. Um, he was, you know, very powerful, very influential. And, you know, his, pretty much his closest friend, his best friend was Abu Jahl. When the Prophet ﷺ proclaimed his mission and his message, at first Umayyah didn't really have any kind of an opinion. But because of the influence of his friend Abu Jahal, he basically kind of joined in and started to pile on the Prophet ﷺ. And turned it into a kind of a sport where he would constantly harass the Prophet ﷺ. He would threaten him sometimes on a daily basis. Like just walk up to him, look him in the face and be like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to murder you. Every day. And that's how staunchly opposed he was to the Prophet ﷺ. Ultimately, he was killed in the Battle of Badr. He was killed in the Battle of Badr. He had a brother by the name of Ubay bin Khalaf, who was also very vile and nasty towards the Prophet ﷺ, he would be killed in the battle of Uhud. But this brother, Umayyah, he was killed in the battle of Badr. Alright? And just so that you have kind of some context, Umayyah bin Khalaf, who we're talking about, he was the person who used to own, for lack of a better term, Bilal radiallahu ta'ala. So Bilal radiallahu anhu was unfortunately, tragically born into slavery. And Umayyah bin Khalaf was the person who quote-unquote owned him, unfortunately. And when he found out that Bilal radiallahu anhu was Muslim, he tortured him ruthlessly, mercilessly, brutally. And he let others like Abu Jahl come in and just take their turns at torturing Bilal radiallahu anhu. So that's how vile this man was. And it's a fascinating story that when they were in the battle of Badr, Bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he sees Umayyah bin Khalaf 
And he, you know, I'm not sure what's the right way to describe this, but he had a very visceral, physical kind of reaction to seeing Umayyah. Like he was shaking. This man had tortured him near death every day for years. Right? So he had like this physical reaction to seeing him in person again. And he, and he started saying that, you know, um, uh, if he survives, then I will not survive. If he survives, then I will not survive. And um, ultimately, he was killed in the battle. So that's Umayyah bin Khalaf. He had a son by the name of Safwan. Safwan was following in his father's footsteps. You know, especially once his father was killed in Badr, he kind of took it upon himself to, you know, uh, carry the mantle of his father, carry the torch for him. And he decided to make it hit the purpose of his life to destroy the Prophet ﷺ, to destroy Islam, to destroy the Muslims. He wanted nothing more than to be able to achieve that. And so, Safwan, when the Prophet ﷺ came to do Umrah based on the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, Safwan was one of those people who went outside of Mecca and protested the Prophet ﷺ being in Mecca. So Makkah ain't big enough for the both of us. If you're going to be here, I'm not going to be here. That's how Safwan felt. Fast forward, the eighth year of Hijrah, 21 years after the beginning of the mission of the Prophet ﷺ, Fatih Makkah happens, the conquest of Makkah, the opening of Makkah. Makkah enters into the fold of Islam. The Prophet ﷺ and 10,000 Muslims arrive into Mecca. The Kaaba is cleared out from all the idols. The Adhan, like Ustad mentioned the other day, Bilal stands on top of the Kaaba, calls the Adhan. The Prophet ﷺ leads Salah. They're doing Tawaf. Alhamdulillah. Islam is restored at the Kaaba and in Mecca. The way it was supposed to be. Safwan says, mm-mm. I'm not hanging around for this. So he leaves. And he flees. And he's about to board a ship to cross over into East Africa. And as he's about to board, the, so as he, once he's fled, Safwan's best friend, his name was Umair bin Wahab. He was also this rich, you know, kind of wealthy. A privileged, you know, young man who grew up in Mecca. His father was also a chief of Quraysh, etc., etc. But Umayyad had secretly already become Muslim previously. So once the Prophet arrived, he was like, yes. So he came out into the public, he came out into the open, came and met the Prophet Muhammad Rasulullah, right? It's all good. Him and Safwan were best friends. They grew up together. So Umayyad comes to the Prophet and he says, Ya Rasulullah. My buddy Safwan, he's fled. He left here. But I know that he's a good person. I know that deep down in, inside of him, there's something good. Ya Rasulullah, please, give him protection. Like give him sanctuary. Guarantee his safety. Before Umayr was even done with the sentence, the Prophet ﷺ said done. Umayr was caught off guard like, 
That, that's it? That easily? That's all it takes? And the Prophet said, yeah. He said, Ya Rasulullah, he's not going to believe that you just forgave him like that. So can I have a sign? Right? Can, you, can you give me something that shows him that you have personally issued this guarantee? So like in our day and age, we would probably record somebody saying that, right? You'd record a video of the person saying that. What do you do at that time? So what they would do at that time is you would give a personal article. You give something very personal that belongs to you, you give it to that person. When they carry your message and then they show that personal item, that's the guarantee. So the Prophet ﷺ was wearing a turban. He had a turban tied around his head. He took off his turban off of his head and he gave it to Umayyad and he said, here, take this. Right? Because there's no way you're going to get what's on the head of the Prophet ﷺ. The Sahaba would murder you if you tried to touch his head. So the only way you can have this is if the Prophet ﷺ gave it to you personally. So now Umayr runs after Safwan. He finds him as he's about to board the ship. He waves him down. He says, friend, friend, come here, come here, listen to me. He goes, no, 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 you're one of them. You're going to try to catch me. He says, no, no, the Prophet ﷺ forgave you. He's guaranteed your safety, come on. And he says, I don't believe you. And then Umayr holds up the turban of the Prophet ﷺ. Look, Safwan is so stunned to see the turban of the Prophet in his friend's hand at the port that he comes to him. He says, really? Muhammad said, I'm safe? Salati said. He says, yeah. So he says, okay. So he comes back with his friend all the way back to Mecca. Comes and sits in front of the Prophet The Prophet tells him, listen, Accept Islam. Understand Islam. Listen to the message. Safwan, he is very stubborn at first. And so he says, I'm not comfortable having this conversation with you. And so the Prophet says, okay, no problem. He said, how much time do you need? He said, I need some time, a couple of, uh, a month or so to really kind of think things through. The Prophet says, take four months. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to ask you about the status of your faith or anything for four months. You take your time. You go back to living your life. You have my personal safety, my personal guarantee of safety. You're completely fine. Nobody's going to mess with you. Your home, your business, everything, business as usual. Go back to normal for four months. No one's even going to ask you what your intentions are. He says, that's fantastic. So now Safwan goes back to his life. A couple of weeks later, something happens. The Muslims receive news that there's an army getting together outside of Mecca, wanting to fight the Muslims. The Bedouin tribes of Hawazin are putting an army together and eventually Ta'if comes and joins them in the valley of Hunayn. They want to fight the Muslims. So the Prophet ﷺ says, we have to go and face, we have to go and deal with this threat. There's 10,000 Muslims, there are 2,000 Meccans who have become Muslim who joined them, so 12,000 soldiers in the Muslim army. The Muslims always never had enough supplies. So they don't have enough weaponry, enough swords for their army. Safwan was very wealthy and Safwan was, you know, 
like what we would kind of call like a weapons collector, a gun collector. Right? He was like Texan, right? So Safwan notoriously had so many, like he had like this whole like uh, building, like a storage facility that was just filled with armor and weapons and swords and armory. And they used to joke about the fact that Safwan had enough armor, you know, artillery to be able to equip an entire army by himself. And it was just his thing. So the Prophet ﷺ called Safwan. And he said, this is the situation. We are dealing with this threat. We are going out to deal with that threat. I'm not asking you to come. But I do have a favor to ask. Can we borrow your stuff, your weapons, your armor, everything, all your artillery, can we borrow your supplies? He goes, Safwan goes from zero to 60. He gets in the face of the Prophet ﷺ and he says, Aghasban ya Muhammad! Look how he talks to the Prophet because he's not Muslim, right? Aghasban ya Muhammad! Are you trying to take my stuff, Muhammad? And the Prophet ﷺ tells him, no, 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 la, la, la. Bal'ariyatan, madmunatan, nu'addiha ilayk. No, no, no. We would like to borrow it, fully guaranteed, where we will compensate you for any kind of damage or loss that occurs. A fully guaranteed loan. We're borrowing it. So, he says, okay, that's fine. You can take it. You can use it. The Prophet ﷺ has the Sahaba make an inventory, a checklist. And then they go, they're gone for about two weeks. When they finally, two, almost three weeks, when they finally get back to Mecca, the Prophet ﷺ has the Sahaba bring the inventory, the checklist, and tells them, go through and account for all of his stuff. When they go through the list, everything is there. There's a few items that are damaged. There's a couple of items that are lost. So the Prophet ﷺ calls Safwan and he says that here's all your stuff. These are the things that are damaged. These are the things that are missing. So please tell me how much I owe you. Please tell me how much I owe you. When Safwan hears that, when Safwan experiences this interaction with the Prophet ﷺ, he stops, he pauses for a moment. And the next words that come out of his mouth are, La ya Rasulullah. You see that? Aghasban ya Muhammad? Three weeks ago. Now he says, La ya Rasulullah. Bal inna li fil islami raghba. He said, No, I am interested in accepting Islam. And Safwan, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he becomes Muslim and accepts Islam. And that is the repentance and the coming to Islam of Safan bin Umayyah radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So inshallah I'll ask Ustad to share some reflections and thoughts. So some of the, some of the uh, commentaries on this story and the different narrations that are mentioned kind of building the narrative they compare Safwan to a very similar story which we covered just a few days ago, which is Ikrama. Uh, obviously, Ikrama, his situation, uh, like almost uncanny in their similarity. Both of them were sons of 
you know, devoted enemies of the Prophet Muhammad Both of them had, uh, you know, as a result of their father's, um, you know, reputation and then them taking on that reputation, uh, when the Feth happened of Mecca, they left immediately and ran as far as they could to try to escape. Both of them had to be brought back to the Prophet Wasallam. So a lot of the commentators, they instantly start to talk about how these two people responded in the same way. The difference that you find, subhanAllah, is that Ikrama, when he came back, he was a little bit smoother around the edges than Safwan was. Mm. Safwan still had that roughness, right? Even though the Prophet Wasallam sort of, you know, did, went out of his way, right? He said... Initially, he was told by, uh, you know, Umair that you have two months to consider. And then when he came to the Prophet ﷺ, he actually asked the Prophet ﷺ, is it true that I have two months? And he said, no, for you, we have four months. Which is a big deal, right? Like, you can come back, you're good to go, you can live as you did. And, uh, you know, I know I said two months, but why don't you take four? No, no harm, nothing. Do whatever you got to do. Think about it. And then when he comes to discuss the arms, uh, you know, borrowing the loan, and Safwan comes at him, right, like Sheikh said, zero to 60 real fast, comes at him real heavy. At that point, you know, and there's a lot of stories like this in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. He doesn't have to take the abuse. And, and a lot of us, sometimes we become very principled when it comes to not taking um, the disrespect, Right? And it's true. In, 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 in Islam, in Sharia, you know, one of the things that is maintained, that is preserved through the rulings of Islam, is a person's honor, is a person's dignity. That's why one of the reasons why one of the things that is haram to strike is what? The face. The face. All right. Sorry for all you UFC fans. Right. So it's haram for a person to strike another person's face. Because one of the reasons is, one of the, the, the sort of core essences that the scholars talked about is because it's the position of honor and dignity, right? We, the only thing that we humble ourselves with the face is to Allah by putting it on the floor. So no one else can, 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 can uh, you know, dishonor the thing that we, you know, uh, send to Allah as a symbol of our humility to Him. So the point being is that in Islam, you're allowed to stand up for yourself, you are allowed to. If somebody comes at you, you are allowed to tell them, watch your mouth. Right? Don't talk to me like that. It's not sinful to push back a little bit. But it can be unwise. Right? And this is what you learn sometimes, that not everything that's allowed for you in the sharia is the best course of action. Because there's multiple pathways that Islam will allow in any given situation. Right? We learn that in fiqh, there's five different rulings. Okay? Unless you're Hanafi, then it's a little bit complicated. But generally, there's five, okay? And when it comes to the, from permissibility onwards, right? Ob obligatory, recommended, permissible, disliked, and impermissible. There are things in the permissible category that will be like lists and lists of choices that you have. But you have to decide which one of them, if done properly, can become the recommended ones. By the way of wisdom that you employ. So the Prophet ﷺ could have easily told him when he said to him, Rasban ya Rasulullah, or Rasban ya Muhammad, he could have said, like, watch your mouth. And remember, why was Safwan kind of on his back foot? Why did he feel cornered? Was because this is after Fatimakkah. And so it kind of feels like 
the Prophet ﷺ is using the what? The power dynamic, the leverage, and comes to him. You know, like in the movies, they'll show like the, the, the mafia. They'll show up and they'll say, hey, I need a favor. Right? The mob, the mob boss will show I need a favor. And you know, and everyone knows that's watching the film, that it's not a favor. If the person doesn't do what they're asking, then their life is gone. So Safwan is interpreting the Prophet ﷺ doing this as, hey, Safwan, I need a favor. And if you don't, then, right? And so he comes at the Prophet ﷺ, and the Prophet ﷺ, instead of taking what's his right, stepping up to the plate a little bit, pushing back, telling him, watch your mouth, don't talk to me like that, he responds in the most benign, in the most almost, you know, I would say ultra-respectful of ways, guaranteeing, mitigating all of his fears, reducing his anxiety, taking away all of the triggers that this guy is having. No, 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 I'm not stealing. In fact, we just want to borrow from you because you're the, you're the, the master of swords, right? You're the, guy, you're the arms dealer here. And not only that, we guarantee that we will take care of anything, any imperfection, any deficiency, any, uh, you know, any blemish, right? And we will make sure that you are compensated for those things. That moment, subhanAllah, and this is what Safwan, he later says. That moment he says, I found something in my heart that I didn't find before. So the question, you know, that we have to ask ourselves is how many times have we done what is technically our right and in the process have broken a relationship? How many times have we done what's our right? Said or done or acted in a way that we thought was principled and was strong and had boldness to it. But in that entire ecosystem, what we actually did was the thing that was a short-term win, but a long-term loss. And you see here that the forgiveness of Safwan coming back to the Prophet ﷺ and seeking his Islam was not the result of Safwan, again, having this intellectual epiphany. Many of these great companions that we're learning about, right? And we hear name Safwan. Many of these great companions that people are named after, they didn't have the Abu Bakr and the Khadija and the Ali and the, they didn't have the epiphany, radiallahu anhum. They didn't have that spiritual epiphany. Many of them came to Islam because of a conversation with the Prophet. Khalid ibn Walid was complimented. Literally, the Prophet told his brother, Your brother is smart. He goes and tells Khalid, you know what the Prophet said about you? What? He said, you're smart. That's pretty much how it went. Hamza was converted because of the love he had for the Prophet as his family. Safwan now is converting why? Or what does he say when he's telling about the heart? He says what? That there is something in my heart now that wasn't there on that day, right? I'm feeling something in my heart now that's different. What was it? It was the fact that the Prophet ﷺ took the high road. It was the fact that He demonstrated what good character was like. And that enabled, gave a pathway, gave an opportunity for Safwan to come back. So number one, obviously the story of Safwan, how it applies to us is that we always have to constantly be thinking about in which situations 
even if we have some sort of you know, relationship or business deal or something, we can't be like Safwan in that moment, right? And we have to make sure that we don't let the irritation, the anger, the frustration get to us because those things can cloud the heart and the mind from making good choices. But the other lesson that I take from this story that I think is remarkable, and then I'll you know, pass it back to Sheikh to conclude, is that in, there will be so many times in your life where in that moment you will have one of two paths. There will be somebody that pronounces your name wrong at Starbucks. First of all, may Allah forgive you for getting coffee from Starbucks. <laughs> My favorite drink at Starbucks is the water, okay? Or the iced tea. There will be somebody that pronounces your name wrong, right? A barista is going to shout out your name incorrectly. It happens all the time. My name is Abdurrahman, you know, and I go to places and they ask for my name. I say it waiting for what creative slash idiotic comment is going to be made. Oh, that's a difficult one. I'm not going to try. What was your mom thinking? Blah, 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 all this stuff, right? In that moment, I could step, step up and go toe-to-toe -to -toe and say, you know what? Like, that's incredibly disrespectful. How could you do such a thing? Right? Do you know how painful that is? Do you know how hurtful that is? What kind of name is Jeff? <laughs> right? Like, we could go at it. And one time I did, and I regretted it. Some guy, I remember, told him my name is Abdurrahman. He goes, I'm going to call you Abe or Alex or something. And uh, I said, what's your name? He says, Steve. I said, I'm going to call you Sally. <laughs> I said, if we're just choosing what to call each other, then, you know, let's... <laughs> but again, I was young and dumb and stupid, and who knows, like, what pathway of khair I blocked because of my ego. So you're going to have those people that you meet at grocery stores and public places, and they're going to say something that's maybe hopefully well-intended, but just comes out horribly. Or you're going to have moments where people say things, and hopefully the best case scenario is it's just like a, a mistake. Worst case scenario is just straight up hate, hatred. In that moment, you have to decide what's more important, Allah or your ego. What's more important? You're allowed to defend your ego, but you may have completely stopped a person from ever seeing Allah through you. And is that worth it? And this is what the Prophet teaches us, that in moments where we would have definitely gone toe-to-toe, -to -toe, he always tells us there's something much bigger here. There's something much more important, way more important than how to say your name, way more important than respecting your culture. Way more important than affirming your identity. And that is your creator. And if you can bring someone back to Islam or connect them in a good way to Islam by humbling yourself and taking a little bit, taking a, a, a little annoying tap on the, on the face or whatever it might be, right, hypothetically, isn't it worth it? I think it is. May Allah Ta'ala accept and allow us to be people that open doors to him and not close doors to him. I mean, Ya Rabb. Sheikh, you want to finish off anything? Can you talk about the 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 Ghanaim? Yeah. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam just like the Asians. Yeah. So <clears throat> say after uh, her name. We included him in the Yeah. So a couple of things. Yeah. So a couple of things. First and foremost, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam you see his character, you see his integrity, you see his honesty, um, and that's actually what changes Safwan's heart. 
There's a particular point that some of the uh, Mufassirun of the Quran, they make this point, the scholars of the Quran. Like Imam al-Razi, rahimahullah ta'ala, he makes this point. There's a particular area of study that is, you know, called the tafsir of the Quran, where you appreciate, you go into the depth of what the Quran means. Within tafsir, there's a particular focused study, which is called al-Balagha al-Qur'aniyya where you study the eloquence, the language of the Qur'an, the beauty and the magnificence, right? The inimitability, how it cannot be replicated of not just what the Qur'an says, but how it says what it says. And he makes the point there that that in and of itself does not constitute faith. Right? That in and of itself does not constitute faith. Why? Safwan was extreme, he, he was very highly educated. He was literate, he could read and write, he formally read and would, would write at a time when that was not common. He actually is quoted, a lot of his poetry is quoted. So he's a very eloquent individual. He was very sophisticated. You know, he was a diplomat and a politician and a public speaker, and a community leader. He was very eloquent and well-spoken. That Imam Razi is saying, Safwan understood the language of the Qur'an better than we do. And Safwan recognized the beauty and the, 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 how remarkable the language of the Qur'an was. More than probably we do, frankly speaking. And he understood every word, like understood meaning to just know what the words mean. Every word that came out of the mouth of the Prophet What I'm trying to highlight is, he had the information all along. But the information just was not doing anything. Does everybody understand my point? He had all the information. He didn't have to. You know like somebody has a misunderstanding about Islam and you give them a translation and then it's kind of like, oh, I get it. No, no, no. Safan didn't need a translation. Safan could have written a translation. Safan didn't need to read like a, like a beginner's book on the life of the Prophet ﷺ, when the moon split. Like he didn't need, he didn't need that. Safan witnessed the life of the Prophet ﷺ. But yet, it, it, didn't, it didn't change him. It made no difference in him. So sometimes the information is just not enough. Right? I shared this earlier in the month of Ramadan, I think during one of the khawatir, one of the reflection um, sessions during the taraweeh. But the most well-versed, the most masterfully expert person that I've ever met when it comes to the Arabic language was, inshallah, hopefully that's not the case anymore. When I met him, he was a self-proclaimed atheist. And his understanding of the Arabic language and poetry and even the Quran, like he was, he had, I had like a two-hour conversation with him about the eloquence of the Qur'an 
And he was making points to me that were blowing my mind. I was like, wow, wow. He had a reference for everything. I was floored by talking to this person and also reading some of his academic work. I don't want to hurt any, like I don't want to, I don't want to shock and awe you. <laughs> so I'm reluctant to even like tell you his name. Not, first of all, I wouldn't want to expose somebody, but his name's not going to help you find him because it's a very kind of, not a specific name, but it will shock you. But maybe it's, you know, uh, the point will just land better. His name, first name, last name, was Muhammad Muhammad. His name was Muhammad Muhammad. The name of the Prophet And he looked me dead in the eye. Right? Because, you know, I, I think I may had a kufi on or something. But overall, like, he asked me, like, my background. And I told him where I had studied and everything. So he kind of was like, oh, okay. So you studied from, like, Islamic studies and, a, you know, Sharia. And you studied, like, from the Islamic angle and this and that. And then he just kind of tells me, he goes that, you know, I don't believe in God. So I was like, but you've actually like written on the eloquence of the Quran. Yeah, he goes, I think it's a fascinating historical document. I just like kind of scooted back a little bit, right? In case he gets struck by lightning. <laughs> like if the earth swallows him at that moment, like I'm just kind of avoid it, Right? And pulled my coffee away. I'm like, right? Ajeeb. But Safwan knew all the information. What turned his heart? The character. The integrity. The honesty. The decency. The dignity of the Prophet. Yeah. Something that's amazing. Sorry. Something that's amazing, I keep reading these narrations and just, you know, little bits are just popping out. A lot of us also, we have this idea that like a person's conversion needs to be, we need to almost like apply a purity test upon it to make sure that it is completely authentic and it's free from anything else, right? We talked about this before. Listen to what Safwan said. So the Prophet ﷺ, along with just the way he treated him, he also included Safwan in some of the, uh, some of the uh, distribution of some of the wealth and spoils of war after uh, Hunayn, okay? Even though it was kind of like after Hunayn, after Hunayn. So he... So, so that was the battle for which the Prophet borrowed his stuff. Yeah. So Safan wasn't Muslim at the time of the battle, nor did he participate, but almost as a token of like appreciation for letting us borrow like your stuff. Honorable mention. Honorable mention, <laughs> right? For letting us borrow your stuff. The Prophet actually gave him a cut of the spoils of war that are supposed to go to those who participated in the battle. Yeah. And it says here, he says, you know, تَأْلِيفًا لِقُلُوبَ بَعْضُهُمْ Like to soften the hearts of people and, and things like that. So he says, لَقَدْ أَعْطَانِي رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمَا مَا أَعْطَانِي وَإِنَّهُ لَأَبْغَضَ النَّاسِ إِلَيَّ He gave me what he gave me at the time when he knew he was the most hated of all humanity to me. Like, it's one thing to give someone a gift when you know that they love you. But can you imagine including someone in the gift giving when you know that all they do is hate you? What kind of heart must the Prophet have had? Then listen. He says, uh, 
وما زال وما زال يعطاني حتى إنه لا أحب الناس إليه. He kept giving me, and he kept just you know uh, including me in the in generosity until he became the most beloved person to me. He he started giving to me when I hated him, and the giving kept going. And there was no like milestone, there was no checkpoint, there was no sort of moment where he said like, oh yeah, like you need to tell me or you need to, are, are we in or, you know, you're not going to get any more camels until you say you love me. Because that was it, they were giving camels, right? Camels are expensive back then, by the way. Everyone's like, what's the big deal? They still are, apparently, right? Sheikh knows, Arlington stuff, okay? <laughs> Denton and Arlington, right? But now we're in Dallas County. So, oh, we are in Denton County. Allah Akbar. Okay, that's why the water tastes funny. Okay, so, and he says he didn't let up. He didn't, he didn't reduce. He didn't do any of that until when I checked my heart, I found that I love no one more than him. Again, just prophetic methodology. There's nothing like it. Many of us try to become more puritanical than the Prophet ﷺ in our education. Like, I'm not going to do this because of, I don't know if this person's sincere. The Prophet ﷺ didn't, not only did he not know, he knew that the person was not sincere. And he still included him in the generosity, in the gift giving. So we see here the Prophet ﷺ doing what we would consider unorthodox styles of da'wah. But this is, of course, just his bread and butter. This is who he was. Allah Ta'ala told him in the Quran that if you weren't like this, people would have run away from you. Yeah. This ability is something very special. Yeah, he didn't sit Safwan down and just say like, I'd like to debate you about the validity of Islam. Right? And let's have a debate. And he wasn't a British Muslim? <laughs> so, I did I didn't. He said it. I'm I didn't so sorry. Like everybody online did say it. I'm not fasting right now. So, <laughs> but um, no, and, and look, there's a place, there's a time and a place for debate. There is. Turn it off. <laughs> There are great luminaries of our past who engaged in debate. Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullahu ta'ala, he debated the hyper-rationalists, the Mu'tazila, the, the Mu'tazila, the Mu'tazilites, the hyper-rationalists. He debated them. There's a time and a place for it. But also understanding that that's not the default. Right? There's a principle in usul that we study all the time. Al-mustathna la tubna alayhi al-qa'idah. Right? There are exceptions to the rule, but we don't make rules out of exceptions. We do not make rules out of... So, debating someone is the exception to the rule. And you cannot make that the rule. That cannot become your default mode. That is break glass if necessary. Right? That is pull the lever in case of emergency. Right? Because when you go into that debate mode... A lot of times, you know what the outcome is? Because if you're even semi-competent, if you're even semi-competent, you have kitabullah. You have qalala qala rasul. You have Islam on your side. So even if you're semi-competent, you're going to obliterate the person you're debating with. And in that obliteration, sometimes that person goes past the point of recovery. Because you break the person so badly that you can actually humiliate them. So you got to know. You got you to gotta tread very carefully. But going back, that just reminded me because Ustad said that like these are the da'wah methodologies of the Prophet 
and sitting down and humiliating the person you're talking to you was not one of his da'wah methodologies. But rather showing him, aren't you tired of living in the darkness? Isn't it cold outside? Don't you want to come and find warmth and comfort and light here with Islam? Right? Don't you want the peace of the Qur'an? The tranquility of the remembrance of Allah? Don't you want to know, you know, the, 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 the contentment and the pleasure and the satisfaction that we have? Come, Habibi, come. And so that's what the Prophet did with his character. So the point I was making was, Safwan had all the information, but the Prophet won him over with his character. And that's what's powerful. Right, And the last, last point that I'll make here is This is the part that always gets me The Prophet ﷺ had the upper hand If you ever want Not you If I ever want To test my character If I ever want to measure my character Right, because it's easy to kind of say You know, you I have good character It's easy to Pat yourself on the back and congratulate yourself and say, I'm a nice person. Right? But if I really want to actually honestly gauge myself, what's my character? Where do I stand? There's one very straightforward way to do that. Observe, analyze, right? Meticulously, like, like scrutinize your own behavior when you have the upper hand. Everyone's polite when they need something. But how do you behave when someone else needs something? Everyone's nice. Everyone's nice when they basically, you know, are, are they don't have the upper hand. When their hand is on the bottom. When their hat is in their hand, then everyone's very nice and polite. But how do you behave? How do you conduct yourself when you have the upper hand? When you, when your hand is on top. When you're the one that someone's trying to get attention from. How do you treat that person then? And if you want to take it even a step further, the person that is Asking the person whose hand is lower, what if that person has wronged you in the past? Right? That, you know, Ustad alluded to this that some of the conversations, some of the follow up questions and converse, some of the follow up questions and conversations that we have, you know, where people say, well, what if somebody is, you know, continuously wronging you and et cetera, et cetera. Again, that might be an exception to the rule, and that's fine. But we don't make rules out of exceptions, first of all. Okay? Secondly, secondly, what the other thing that you have to understand and appreciate there is, if, and, and I think Ustad mentioned this yesterday, that if you choose that you don't want an in-depth relationship with that person, that's completely fine. But at the same time, can you let that person have their dignity in the moment? Can you leave their dignity intact? Do you have enough decency to not humiliate that person in their moment of weakness and in their moment of need. 
And that will say a lot, you know, about who I am. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ is Uswatun Hasana, the ultimate role model. And to go back to the story we were talking about forgiven, that's what facilitated the forgiveness of a man like Safwan ibn Umayyah radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Barakallahu feekum. Anything else to say? Jazakumullah khairan. Come early tomorrow night. Yes. Thank you very much everyone for joining us uh, regularly uh, throughout these last 10 nights and overall the month of Ramadan. Tomorrow is uh, Yomul Jumu'ah. It is the day of Friday. So inshallah, <clears throat> there's a qawl of uh, Ibn Rajab in Lata'if al-Ma'arif where he talks about that Ramadan is virtuous, Fridays are virtuous, the Ramadans, the Fridays in Ramadan are super virtuous. Right? So try to make the most of tomorrow's day inshallah. And it's technically already started. Read your kahaf, make some dhikr, make some dua, read some Quran. You know, make sure you can try as much as possible. I know people have work in school, but try to make it to Salat al-Jumu'ah uh, somewhere tomorrow. We will be praying Jumu'ah here at 2 p.m. inshallah. So you're more than welcome to join us tomorrow night after Salat al-Taraweeh, uh, around midnight, you know, we're, we're asking people to start coming and joining. And then the program will start at 12.30. We will have Qiyam. And after that, we will have uh, multiple sessions, inshallah. Mufti Hussein Kamani will be here. Ustad Abdurrahman will be here. Sheikh Mikail will be here. Ustad Fatima will be also speaking to us. So inshallah, it's going to be a very, very beneficial program tomorrow, inshallah. So come and join us. And as Ustad mentioned, try to come a little bit early uh, because, you know, we're expecting that parking and all that kind of stuff might be a little bit more complicated like yesterday. So try to come early, inshallah, and join and be here. Um, and yeah, we look forward to, inshallah, uh, seeing everyone tomorrow. I know that sister raised her hand for a question, but find me afterwards, inshallah. We're going to get the qiyam going, inshallah, because I know a lot of folks look forward to praying some qiyam before they go home, so we're going to get the qiyam started. Jazakumullah khairan. Barakallahu feekum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.